Let us pray before we get into God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day of worship and um, all that has led into this time, uh, into your word being preached and heard and heeded. Thank you for everyone that you've brought to our service today, God, and pray that you would speak to each of us, to our hearts and to our spirits and to our minds. Uh, Help us, God, to uh, take your word for what it is, the word of God and not the word of man. And pray it would be an edifying, encouraging and uh, convicting time for for us to consider all that you have uh, to to say. So thank you once again uh, for your son, God, who makes eternal life possible, even for sinners like us. And uh, we cherish that today as we approach your table. So uh, we praise you with this time and ask your blessing on it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been a couple Sundays since uh, I was in the pulpit. So normally it's 45 minutes, but uh, to make up for that, uh, times three, I have 135 minutes today. Um, Ivan, that's in the bylaws somewhere, right, isn't it? Maybe not. (laughs) No, actually, since uh, that's not the case, why don't we turn to the book of Acts. That's where we're going to be today. I want us to look at Acts 20, verse 24, as we start off this still new year of 2024. Uh, I want to consider to what extent that we have turned our lives over to Jesus. That's our sermon title today, Turning Our Lives Over to Jesus. And uh, I'm not talking about turning over a new leaf uh, as the calendar year turns uh, for this year. I, I don't mean rolling up our sleeves and saying we're just going to be better. You know, we're just going to do better this year. Um, some people like to make New Year's resolutions, uh, which I think is fine, uh, even admirable uh, for some. But I'm not referring to that either. By the way, we know that the great Puritan Jonathan Edwards wrote out a list of 70 resolutions for his life. He began each of them with the word resolved, and it would be a statement of what he was determining to do for his life. He did this back in the year 1722. He was only 17 years old, and he finished that uh, list of 70 the next year uh, when he was 18. And so at the beginning of those resolutions, he wrote to himself to remember to read over these things at least once per week. And um, I thought that was just a, a good thing for us to think about. And um, speaking of not just kind of rolling up our, our sleeves and putting on our boots and saying we're just going to be better, let me just uh, read to you what he prefaced those 70 resolutions with. One statement, he says, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. I think that's a good way to to think about things, right? Uh, We can't do anything in and of our own power and strength. Uh, We are reliant upon God's power, God's grace to, to move us and help us and even motivate us. So I'd like us to take inventory of our lives today to evaluate and be encouraged to live evermore for Christ for Christ's sake, for his great name in this new year, 2024. 
Like Paul says in Philippians 1.21, right? Some of you have memorized it. For to me, to live is what? Is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay? The, the way Paul defined his life was simply Christ. Living was Christ. It was all about Jesus, all about the Savior, all about the things of God in Jesus Christ. The challenging question for us is, would people who know you, would they say about you that your life is all about Christ? Yeah. Would they say, oh, yes, he has turned over his life to Jesus. Her life is all about Christ. Would your family members say that? Fellow church members, co-workers, friends, fellow students? Would you say that about yourself? Okay, the Apostle Paul could. And we're in Acts 20, 24 for the year 2024. This is paired with our, our theme, which I mentioned in our annual congregational meeting. Hopefully you've remembered, but I kind of want us to focus as a church on Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, which me and my, our family, we, we memorized during our devotion time, during our vacation. So uh, after church, you can you might quiz one of them. But Colossians 4, 2 through 6, I'd like our church to kind of focus on that, right? But uh, along with that, we're brought to Acts 20, verse 24. And uh, before we get into the verse, just very brief context. Okay, this is the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Okay, he's pushing 60 years old at this point, and he's already been through three missionary journeys. And if you ever look at those maps in the back of your um, Bible, um, you can see all the, the, the traveling that that took. And uh, there was no airplane, nor, no air conditioning, no rental cars, no CD player, nor, nor, no, none of that. Um, okay, they, they were traveling by by ship and by foot or by beast and long hours of, of travel. And so that in itself is a challenge. But he endured beatings, bruises, scars, wounds, mobs, all for proclaiming the gospel. And he, along the way, uh, as he was ministering, he performed all sorts of incredible miracles, uh, which were authenticating miracles, right? It authenticated that he was a man sent from God and that his message was from God. And so he was a special case there, along with the other apostles. But um, a funny thing happened as we approach verse 24 of Acts chapter 20. Uh, verses 7 through 12, I'll remind you of this. Okay, speaking of long sermons. On the first day, verse uh, 7 of Acts 20. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. That's what you get for falling asleep during a sermon. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. When he had gone back and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. But they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. He was resurrected. And so um, much grace there, right? So anyway, uh, after all this, uh, he meets up with the elders of the church at Ephesus, who he had ministered to previously. Um, Paul knows at this point he's headed towards jail, imprisonment. 
and possibly, probably even be killed. And so these are his final words to the Ephesian elders. And uh, we're going to focus in on verse 24 today. But uh, if you would stand, if you are able, let's read 17 to 24 of chapter 20. Okay, this leads us into our verse. Verse 17 of Acts 20 says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Ephesian elders, right? And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. This leads to verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Please be seated. So what does it look like to turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to turn your life over to him? Well, I have three, three points for you today, and they're taken from each of those clauses in this one verse of Acts twenty twenty four. And the first one is this. Understand that your life is not merely for yourself. Your life is not just for yourself. Paul says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. He didn't think his own life was precious to him. Of no account whatsoever, he says. Not of any account. And that is so very counter to the world, to Paul's world, to today's world, maybe especially to today's selfie society. Right. It's all about you. It's all about your brand. Everybody has to have a brand. Right. Or some kind of moniker, some kind of thing. It's about your name. We're going to get to Genesis 10 and 11 at some point. Right. But uh, Babylon. Right. Building the tower. Uh, It's all about your desires, your fulfillment, rather than fulfilling God's calling on the life that he gave to you. And we think that life is all about us. But we don't understand that everything that we have is given from God. So isn't that the issue and the problem with most of us today, including me? We think life is centered on us. How could Paul say such a thing? Okay, how is his life not so dear, so prized, so cherished, so treasured to himself as of no worth, no account? Well, a couple of reasons. Hey, Paul remembered what he once was. A wicked, self-righteous, prideful, rejecter of God and persecutor of God's people. Um, you can jot down Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6. 
We're going to go through um, a number of scriptures today, but Philippians 3, verses 5 through 6, um, he was listing there uh, his past accomplishments. And yes, he was once proud of who he was, an outstanding, zealous, religious Jew who hated Christians. Uh, Galatians 1.13, I'll read it to you, you can jot it down also, but he says uh, to the Galatians, For you have heard of my former manner of life in, Ju- in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Some of us uh, know that in Acts chapter 8 and 9, uh, we read of uh, Stephen being killed and martyred and Paul being witness to that and approving of that. And chapter 9 is when Saul becomes Paul, right? He gets converted. He gets converted to Christ. And so um, in Acts chapter 22, which is a couple chapters after where we are right now today, um, Acts chapter 22, between Acts 9 and Acts 22 is, is several years. Okay, Paul went through a lot of stuff. He, he got direct teaching from the Lord from, for, for three years. Okay, uh, he went to the original master's seminary. Okay, three years direct from the Lord. And he was in Arabia for a number of years and uh, being trained and studying God's word. And then he was uh, called to, to ministry. And so Acts chapter 22, uh, it, it, it's, it's, he's living this life of former persecutor to persecuted. And Acts uh, 22, Paul is dragged out of the temple. He's about to be thrown into the barracks. He's causing riots because of his preaching. And he gives testimony of his conversion to his fellow Jews in the Sanhedrin. It's like this really tumultuous scene. And Paul's under the gun. People want to kill him. But then he explains to his Jewish kin, his Jewish brethren, who are in a hush at this point. Acts uh, 22, starting in verse 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as all you are today. And he says in verse four, I persecuted this way to the death, this way, Christianity, Christians, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. They saw him do it. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished, okay, taking away Christians to go to jail and be killed. Verse 6, but it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Verse 11, but since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So he goes in, he receives the sight, Ananias meets Ananias, tells him what he's about to do. And then it says in verse 17, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Verse 21, he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So point being, folks, uh, we are reminded of, and Paul remembers his former life before Christ. He remembered who he was as such a self-righteous, wicked sinner. So how else could he say that his life is of no account? No account. I, I, I take no stock in it. For, um, the next thing is Paul knew where he was going. He didn't just remember his, his life before Christ, but he also, in Christ, as a Christian now, knows where he's going. Even if his physical life ends up being taken, even if he's killed, martyred, a head cut off, which eventually is what happens uh, under, under Nero. Okay, Philippians 1, 21 to 23, he says, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which, which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. Why? Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul knew exactly where he was going, and he knows that life with Christ in heaven, with God, is way, way better, very much better than to remain on the flesh. But he says to the Philippians, but to remain here is necessary for your sake. And so he was gladly staying on this earth so he could continue to minister the gospel to people. So do you know where you're going when you die? And that is a, a, a question for those who are not who are here today and, and not yet Christians. Do you know where you're going to go when you die? And I ask if you are, you're sure about that. Are you certain you know where you're going to go? And it's not a casual question. It's actually the, the most important question that anybody could ever ask of themselves. And ultimately, in the end, it's really the only question that, that matters. Okay, do you know where you're going to be, where you're going to go when you die? Paul knew it. And in 2 Corinthians 4, he says... In verses 16 and 17, Therefore we, fellow Christians, we do not lose heart. But though our, our outer man is decaying, outer man, our physical body, and those of us who are getting older, we understand that more and more clearly, how our outer man is decaying. And yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Spiritual sanctification, right? But then he says, verse 17, For momentary light affliction which is what we're going through on this earth, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And that's the hope, that's the, that's the joy, that's the peace that we get to look forward to, an eternal weight of glory with God forever in heaven. So understand that your life is not just for yourself. Okay? Life is not about you, no matter what the world Social media, entertainment, movies, everything, literature, the whole world tries to sell you. Don't buy it. And let me give you a reason, okay? the reason. 1 Corinthians 6.20, um, as we understand that life is not about ourselves, what's the, the reason for that? Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for you have been bought with a price. And what was that price? It was the, the price of Jesus' blood, his death on the cross, his sacrifice on your behalf. And so that's the reason. You've been bought with the price of Jesus' blood. 
And so he ends that verse by saying, and that chapter by saying, therefore, glorify God in your body. Thus, live not for yourself, but for the glory of God. So the reason, isn't that reason fuel for us? Um, Jesus loved you. He died for you. He redeemed your life from the pit. He bought you from a life of destruction. He purchased you out of sin's death grip and curse. He bought you with his own blood so that you could be forgiven of all your sins and justified before God, declared righteous before a holy God. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough to understand that life is not about us, but it's about him and fuel that he rescued us from sin and Satan and hell. He saved your eternal soul, something that we could never accomplish on our own, no matter how much good that we do. We can't earn it by ourselves. Isn't that enough to fire us up and turn our lives over to Jesus in this coming year? Remember, Jesus himself did not consider his life as any account as dear to himself but gave himself up for us that we might be saved and the Father be glorified. And as I found myself repeating and reminding myself and even you all, dear church, uh, through this past Christmas season, that the greatest gift in our salvation is not only forgiveness and redemption and eternal life uh, as absolutely glorious and wonderful all of those things are, uh, but as I was pointing out during Christmas time, it's not even the blessing of, of the celebration, right? The food, the fun, the fellowship, the feasts, the family, all of that. The greatest gift, actually, of the gospel is that Jesus has brought us to God. He's brought us to God. Personal knowledge of the Creator. Okay? Access to the Father. A right relationship with the triune God of the universe. Hey, um, some people like to name drop, right? Trying to impress other people. They know that they, they, they know certain uh, celebrities or they have some kind of friendships at some level with like Hollywood actors or musicians. Um, they have personal interactions maybe in their work with the, the rich and famous or they know through a friend of a friend. And as they share that with, with some of us are impressed, right? Somehow our esteem of this person rises to some level because they, you know, they know some famous person. Uh, well, we Christians, we get to name drop Yahweh God. Okay, that's his personal name, Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have a, a superficial, low-level friendship or acquaintance with him. We know him intimately, personally. And we're specially loved by him. And he knows us completely. And we have complete access to him 24-7, all the time. And we know him in a loving, right relationship. And I ask you, have you name-dropped Jesus to anyone lately? Hey, Paul, in, in Philippians 3.8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, okay, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul counted his former life and all his actually impressive achievements and accolades 
uh, in his former life before Christ, he counted them all of it as rubbish, rubbish. And that's a sort of a polite word. Uh, the Greek word is skubalon, which actually means dung. And he counted all his accomplishments and, and achievements from the past as, as dung. Why is that? Because he considered knowing Jesus, that relationship with Christ, to be of far greater value, surpassing value, he says. No comparison. And knowing Jesus blows away any other thing that he's ever done and any other thing that he used to treasure. So you might ask, uh, but isn't life precious? Shouldn't we cherish life? Uh, after all, we're going to do sanctif- Sanctity of Life Sunday next Sunday, right? Um, shouldn't we cherish our own lives? I'll just remind you of what Jesus says to that. Okay, Luke chapter 9, Matthew chapter 10. He says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. So yes, life is certainly precious, but what for? What for? For the cause, for the sake, for the name of Jesus Christ. That's why it's precious. Luke 14:26. he also says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Um, this is the cost of discipleship, right? Such level of love and devotion for Jesus that comparatively your love for other things, and he even mentions family there, okay, it seems like hatred. So the issue is, what is it in your life that you are cherishing or loving above Jesus Christ? In 2024, we want to turn our lives over to Jesus. And that equals understanding that life is not about you. It's not just for you. This is a a very fundamental truth uh, for us to grasp. Your life was created for God, for Christ, and to be lived for his sake. What else does turning our lives over to Jesus look like? Second thing I want to point out is from the second part of verse 24. uh, Know that Jesus gave you a mission for you to accomplish for him. Know that Jesus gave you a mission to accomplish for him. Verse 24b says, So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul had a specific course, a specific task given to him by Christ, which we read a little bit of that in Acts. He, along with the 12 disciples, they were, he was one of the 13 capital A apostles. And when we say capital A apostles, we mean that they were directly commissioned by Jesus Christ, directly sent out by the Lord. There are no apostles around today, no matter what some of these False teachers try to claim um, those 13 were the original and only big A apostles. And um, they were the, the foundation of the church of which Christ is the cornerstone. Right. Ephesians two, verse 20. Uh, the foundation of the church has been set. It's done. It's been laid out by them. And ever since Christians have been growing and building the church um, just like we are striving to do today. So all to say, none of us here are big A apostles like Paul was. Um, there were a few mentions in Scripture of 
uh, certain men who were called apostles, but that was used in a more generic sense uh, than Paul and the Twelve. These men, like Barnabas in Acts 13 and 14, possibly Andronicus and Junius in Romans 16, perhaps even Titus and Epaphroditus, uh, they were particularly sent out ones, sent out to evangelize, um, but they were sent out by the church and not by Christ himself. And so we kind of consider them small a apostles. Uh, today we might think of people who are doing missionary work, okay, who are called to be missionaries like the precious people who Faith Bible Church supports, the, the Borsics, the Lambs, the, the Quays, the Spitalis, the Ann Kuntz and, and the Wolfs in, up in Santa Clarita. Okay, so all this leading to the key piece for us to know, right, is that in a very broad sense, all disciples of Jesus Christ, all Christians are small a apostles. If we understand that in a broad sense to mean people who are sent out, okay, sent out ones, uh, that's the literal meaning of the word. Each of us here, if we're Christians, all of us, we are we are here as those who are called to be sent out. We actually gather, okay, we gather so that we can scatter. What are we scattering for? Okay, to spread the gospel. So Jesus gave you and I a mission, a ministry, a task to accomplish for him. No matter what your vocation is, what your job is, what your career is, and whatever your season of life, okay, whether you're a doctor or an auto mechanic, an engineer, CEO, a nurse, a student, a teacher, a janitor, a lawyer, a warehouse manager, or a housewife. I saved the best one for last, by the way. But if you're a Christian, you have a basic mission and purpose and ministry in life. You have a purpose mission here on this earth. It doesn't matter if you're five years young, 15 years old, 50 years old, or 70, or closing in on 100. Okay? We have this mission together. And um, the first part of it is to finish running the race of the Christian life. Okay? Paul says, I've finished, I'm, I'm, uh, I may finish my course. Finish running the race of the Christian life. This is talking about sanctified living. Okay? Becoming more like Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 12, we know it well, right? Paul commands the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, be sanctified. Be sanctified. Pursue holiness with utmost seriousness, with fear and trembling. In Jude 21, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Jesus, in John chapter 15, basically in those first 11 verses, he's saying, bear fruit in your life for me. Bear spiritual fruit in your life for my sake. How? How, Jesus? How am I supposed to do that? Well, he says, abide in me, dwell in me, remain in me, stay with me, stay in me. He says, abide in my word. Are you reading your Bible this year? Do you have a Bible reading plan? Right? If you you don't have a plan, you're most likely not going to do it. Um, Are you studying the word? He says, abide in my love. Are you spending time with Jesus? Are you having devotions every day? Purposely spending time with Christ, devotional, personal prayer times with him. This is sanctification, part of our sanctification. Romans 8.29, 
God's good purpose in saving you was to conform you into the image of Christ. Okay, that's following the famous verse 828, right? That God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him. Verse 25 says that he was, we, we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to live righteously for his glory. So listen, Jesus gave you a course, okay, a task, and it starts with your own growth in holiness. You are to work out your salvation. Work it out. That means effort, energy, expenditure. Um, it, takes, it takes sweat to become holy, to become like Christ, like God. Even with the new birth and the new nature that he has given to us uh, when we're born again, uh, it still takes effort. Okay, the comforting thing is verse 13 of Philippians 2, right? That God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He doesn't leave us by ourselves to 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 be sanctified. And yet, it's both and. So, let me tell you this, dear church family, and I, I feel like I do this frequently, but um, your sanctification is not just for yourself either. Okay, just like our first point, your life is not just for you. Even your sanctification, your spiritual growth, your progress in Christ-likeness is not just for you. It's bigger than that. Okay, God is bigger than that. His plan for us is bigger than that. And your spiritual growth is for the sake of others. It's to build up others. And this is part of the mission that the Lord Jesus gave you to accomplish here on earth. Okay? For, for you to grow in sanctification and also to build up the church. To build up the church. We know that Jesus said that um, I will build up my church, right? I will build my church is what Jesus said. But listen, we as Christians get to be part of his building project. Isn't that a wonderful privilege? Wonderful thing to know. And what it is to build up the church uh, is, is practicing the one another's. Okay? New Testament, there's like 60 of them in there. Uh, the one another's of the New Testament, to love each other, encourage each other, admonish, be devoted to one another, honor each other, build up each other, edify, pray for. Okay? Specifically, all those commands in the New Testament are in the context of the local church. We had this discussion a little bit yesterday at Men of the Word. And so serve one another. Like, why Why do we do all these things ultimately? Okay. Is it because all of us are so winsome and lovable and have easygoing personalities here at Faith Bible Church and uh, none of us got any any warts or hang-ups or, or no sin uh, to deal with? Okay. Obviously not. We do these things for each other out of our love for Christ our Lord. We serve and love the church because we serve and love Jesus. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, okay, motivates us, moves us. And verse 15, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. Clearly remember Jesus' own words while he was still here on earth in Mark 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Edification, that word edify, it means to build up. And as we were talking uh, yesterday at Men of the Word, part of that means to physical acts uh, of, of sacrifice, physical good deeds, physical service to others. Sometimes it means stacking chairs or setting up tables. 
um, whatever it is, uh, going to someone's house and helping them with something. Uh, it also means spiritual edification, spiritual building up. That's where the encouragement comes in, right? That's when the word comes in. If we don't have the word, we don't have anything to build up others with except for our own wisdom, right? That's why we need to be in the word, not just for me, but for the sake of the church, for the sake of fellow believers. Sometimes it means emotional help, okay? Just being a listening ear to people, being compassionate in that they know that they have someone that they can, they can go to who will just listen, Okay, so all of these different ways we are to serve our fellow Christians, especially in the church. Of course, we're supposed to do good works outside of the church to unbelievers, uh, other Christians out there. But the primary call and priority is to build up the local church that God has called us to. So some of us today, we're getting towards the end of the race. We're closer to the finish line than the starting gun. And praise the Lord for that. Uh, others are at that starting point. Um, they got a lot of exciting miles ahead of them. But, beloved church, I want to say that we're all running the race together. We're arm in arm. We're cheering each other on. We're encouraging and warning, picking each other up, helping one another to keep going, to be steadfast running the race. So when we go on vacations, we're as a family, we're usually hiking. Um, at some point and uh, doing hikes. And if there's a new or unfamiliar trail, uh, especially if there's a somewhat dangerous path uh, that we're upon going up or down a mountain, um, the trailblazer, the one who's in the lead, usually it's me or one of my boys, but um, uh, somebody, whoever's in front, uh, calls out to those who are behind to look out for things, right? There's a big tree root coming up. Tree root, a slippery gravel, a steep step coming, uh, code brown. Hey, some of you could guess what that means, right? And so, scubalon, speaking of. Um, so, again, we do this out of love and care for the ones following us, the ones uh, behind us, knowing that Christ loved us first. And so, we do that. First John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Hey, let me just ask you, dear people, do you love the church? Do you love fellow Christians in the church? How is that being shown? Because it says if, if, if you do, you're born of God and you know God. But the one who does not love, and the context here is specifically fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The one who does not love does not know God, for God, God is love. John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, by this, the world will know you are my disciples, by your love one for another. And so this leads us to our last point and what it means to look like to um, what it looks like to turn your life over to, to the Lord Jesus. Number one, understand your life is not just for you. OK, it's all about Christ. That's what it's for. Number two, know that Jesus gave you a mission to accomplish for him. And that's to be sanctified in your life It's to build up the church. The last thing is this. You are called to proclaim the gospel. You are called to proclaim the gospel. This is this is part of the mission that Jesus gave you to accomplish for him. And it's our last point. Okay, what's it mean to to turn your life over to Jesus? Acts uh, 24, um, 20, verse 24. The last part says, Paul says to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. 
testify solemnly. Mounts' expository dictionary gives a, a good explanation of, of this Greek word, dia marturomai. Dia marturomai is a compound verb. So dia is the preposition that's stuck in front of the, the regular verb, uh, martureo, which means to testify. So when you put a, a preposition, especially the one dia there, it, it compounds it, which intensifies the meaning of testify. So that's why it says testify solemnly. And so it means to give a warning, um, to testify, especially in the case of important matters and situations of extreme danger. Mounts' Dictionary says, accordingly, in the majority uses of dia marturamai, which 15 times in the New Testament is used, the reason for testimony or this warning, the solemn warning, is the need for salvation of non-Christians or living rightly as a Christian. And interestingly, it's used for both. Um, but right now we're focusing on the testimony towards non-Christians. Uh, thesaurus.com, the strongest matches for the word testify, was to announce, to argue, to assert, to declare, to depose, to witness. Okay, announce what? Declare what? Proclaim what? Obviously, it's the gospel of the grace of God. Okay, that's the calling. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So there's two kind of aspects of discipleship there, right? The first is, um, by the way, one could argue that the definition of a disciple is one who is making disciples. So think about yourself as a disciple of Christ. Are you making disciples? But um, in Matthew 28, that, that great commission, there's two aspects of discipleship there. One is uh, discipling into Christ, which is what we're focusing on right now. Evangelism, okay? sharing the good news of God's grace, bringing people into the kingdom, winning them into the kingdom of light and out of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness. Okay? The other aspect there is discipling in Christ. Okay, those who you've brought into Christ, those who are saved, uh, building them up, just like we're talking about, discipleship, helping them grow as Christians. Okay, that is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, right? So, um, but getting back to the other one, simply put, this is what, why we're turning our, part of what we're turning our lives over to Jesus for, devoting ourselves to that basic mission and ministry. We are to proclaim the gospel of Christ. That's what it is. I was saying to the men yesterday, it's not complicated. The Christian life is not complicated as long as we stay focused on what the mission is. And so I appreciated Pastor Bill's question from last January's sermon um, that he gave at the beginning of the year. Uh, He said there were four uh, questions that are good to ask ourselves every year. One being, how many people did you share the gospel with in the last year? It's a good question for us to ask. Now, I'll ask you this year in 2024, how many people have you shared the gospel with so far this year? Okay. Shamefully for me, it's it's been two. So we're in the second week of, of I, I, got a, I got a ways to go. I got work to do. Um, I have uh, given these out, uh, a handful of these out quite a bit, and it's a Living Waters gospel tract. And um, and I, I tell people that, please read this. This is worth more than a million dollars. 
Hey, one of the ladies I gave it to at Starbucks, um, she actually confused it for a tip. So I had to be quick to let her know, hey, that's, that's not a million dollars, but it's worth far more than a million dollars. Please read and consider. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.23 says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. All things for the sake of the gospel grace of God. And so he says in Acts 24, 20, verse 24 again, to testify solemnly of the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God. Okay? The gospel is all a gift. That's, it's all of God's grace, undeserved favor. Um, our mission is to tell others about this grace, and they won't hear without a preacher. Romans chapter 10. Right? We don't have to be a pastor or an evangelist, uh, specially called by God uh, to, to this ministry. Uh, we're all called to be those small A apostles, sent out ones, disciple makers, and those who are proclaiming the good news. I'm going to close with this illustration from John Payton, his autobiography, which was um, put out by the Banner of Truth many years ago. John Payton, he was born in Scotland in 1824. He was reared in a godly home, came to personal faith in Christ. As a young man, he worked in an inner city mission in Scotland. But the Lord put it upon his heart to go as a missionary to the fierce cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. In 1839, the first missionaries to these islands had been clubbed to death, cooked, and eaten within a few minutes of landing. So in 1857, it was 18 years after those first martyrs had shed their blood on the beach of the New Hebrides, Peyton himself strongly sensed God's call in his life to offer himself for missionary service there. He immediately met with strong opposition from many who knew him. Okay, people who knew him, his friends, family. They argued that he was leaving a certain ministry that God had obviously blessed for an uncertain future where he might throw his life away among the cannibals. His converts here needed him, and besides, there were plenty of heathen at home to reach. Why go halfway around the world to reach these savages? He was even offered a free house and was told to name his salary on condition that he would stay at home. But those temptations only served to confirm his calling to go to the South Seas. Among the many who sought to deter him was one older Christian gentleman whose crowning argument to Peyton was always the cannibals. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. Finally, Peyton replies to him, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. By the way, some of you may know that Peyton lost his wife and his infant son within a few months of their arrival to the New Hebrides. And he lived in almost daily danger of his own life. But God spared him. He lived to the age of 83, and he um, successfully ministered to many uh, of those um, in the islands there. And he traveled around the world, publicizing and spreading the word that these people need Christ. Late in his life, he said, quote, Oh, that I had, oh, that I had my life to begin again. I would consecrate it anew to Jesus in seeking the conversion of the remaining cannibals on the New Hebrides. 
John Payton finished his course because he put the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus above even his own life. So, dear people, whatever's holding you back, uh, whether it's money or love of money or security or comfort or time or talent, your abilities or energy, your resources, have we turned over our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, can, we, can we determine, okay, not in our own strength, but by the grace of God, to do this this year, 2024, in consideration of Acts 2024? Are we hold on, holding on to something or some things or, some per, or whatever it is as more dear in our lives than Jesus? Hey, Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life, hey, the gospel, God's word, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Those are inspiring, encouraging words for us today. Philippians 2.16. So I want us to transition into our communion time by reflecting on this verse, on this message, on our lives, evaluation. What are you living for? Have you turned your life over to Jesus Christ?